0: Our scripture reading tonight is from 2 Kings, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Israel captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozen on the Haber River, and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against their, Lord, their the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right, From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, Do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: That's a, really a summary statement uh, for what we're going to be looking at tonight. The, um, the, the, the title of the sermon is Exile. And uh, we're really going to be talking more about the exile of North Israel tonight and the next time... Uh, we address the, the Holy Words, which will probably be a week from uh, a week from Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to look at what happened at the latter part of that text out of Second Kings 17 about South Judah following the practices of North Israel. But first, uh, before we jump into this, let's, uh, let's uh, go to our Father in prayer and ask Him to bless us as we study. Father, we're, we're grateful for this, this great day, and we pray, Father, for the safety of all those that are traveling back to home after being with us this morning and coming for homecoming and reunion and the celebration Sunday. We're so thankful for their presence this morning. and We pray that, that you bless them with safety as they travel home. And we're grateful for our church and for all of the things that you're doing among the people that make up the body of this, this church, this family. And we pray that you continue to keep us strong and that you keep our minds uh, keen and and sharp with your word, Father, and 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 wise with your word, and 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 vibrant in our faith as we share it, and as we do our deeds as great light in this community, we we pray, Father, for for you to live among us and for your hand to be upon us as we share our faith, and that we do bring a new culture into this city. And tonight, as, as we study about this, this particularly sad part of, of the history of, of your people, Father, we, we pray that you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in order to discern it in ways that changes. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Just a a quick reminder, the the statement that we use at the beginning of these Holy Word uh, messages to remind us of, of what we're thinking about as it comes to the Bible is a reminder that the Bible is not a collection of random stories, it's not, it's not just uh, something, a hodgepodge put together, a, a pastiche of, of all these different stories that, that somehow got collected from antiquity and, and have been blended together to make this book we call the Bible. We don't think that that's the Bible at all. It's not a collection of random stories, but it's one story. And it's a story about God and it's a story about the creation of man and all of creation and what went wrong when sin was introduced into the world through our own foolishness and what God is doing in His righteousness, His holiness, and His love, His compassion and mercy and grace to put it all back together again now as, as I, I said earlier we're going to be thinking about a particularly sad it's interesting but it's also a, a very sad time in the history of Israel we're going to be looking at uh, at the time of Solomon's death which is about 931 to 930 B.C. if you th- agree with Edmund Thiel's uh, assessment of the time which I do about 931 930 B.C. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon is dead. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 41, As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel forty years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son succeeded him as king. And Rehoboam is going to be made king, and because the capital is is in Jerusalem, that's where he is initially made king. But he he understands that politically things are not very cohesive in Israel during this period of time. And so he's going to go to north uh, into the, 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 the the area of the ten tribes, and he's going to go to Shechem, and he's going to try to get the northern tribes to support him. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is a name that you're going to hear a lot tonight, hears it. And he returns from his exile in, in Egypt and returns to Israel. Now, you remember that this Jeroboam was a guy that had been discovered by, his, by Rehoboam's father Solomon. He had been industrious. He was a mighty warrior. In fact, uh, Solomon was so impressed with him that he put him in charge of the building projects, forced, or compulsory labor. And he had been this up-and-comer. And he had caught the eye of the king, and he had been elevated. And then one day, while he's out on the road, there is a, a Shiloh night prophet by the name of Ahijah that meets Jeroboam on the road. And, he, and I, you know, you kind of wonder how these things happen. You know, you're walking down the road, and this guy comes up to you and rips your shirt off of you and tears it into 12 pieces. That gets you in a lot of trouble in, in modern America. But that's what happens in Israel. He's walking down the road, he meets Ahijah, Ahijah tears his garment into 12 pieces, and he gives 10 of them back to to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he says, you are going to rule over 10 tribes. Well, Solomon is a smart guy, and he has ears all over the the area, and the news of what Ahijah had said to, uh, to Jeroboam on the road makes it back to Solomon. And Solomon has a son by the name of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is the heir apparent. And and Solomon does not want anybody standing in the way. So he tries to kill Jeroboam. He tries to put him to death. And Jeroboam is 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 a man of action. He's not a guy that's going to sit around and be indecisive. He makes the decision, I've got to get out of Dodge. And so he leaves not only Jerusalem, but he leaves the country. He goes down into Egypt seeking asylum with Pharaoh Shishak. And now, after the death of Solomon, he's back. And he's in Shechem with Rehoboam, where Rehoboam has gone to find support for the northern tribes to consolidate everybody into to making him king and anointing him as king. And he he puts it uh, he, he puts it to to Jeroboam, uh, or excuse me, to Rehoboam in, in sort of a, a um, I don't want to say kind, but 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 in a wise way. He says to Rehoboam, your father in verse four put a heavy yoke on us. And by that, what he's referring to is, all you know, Solomon was his great architect. He was a tremendous builder of things, and his wisdom was able to put things together and to engineer things. And he made, he made Israel this, this superpower, this mighty nation. In fact, he brought it to the zenith and the apogee of its power. But to do that, he had to really tax the people, and he had to force them into labor. There was compulsory labor at the time, and he just really, really worked the people to, to, to the bone. And Jeroboam has now come back and he's going to put it to Rehoboam. And he says, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us and we will serve you. Well, Rehoboam has three days to render the decision. He goes to the older advisors who say, you know what, we agree with Jeroboam. All you have to do is look out on the political landscape and to see that there is a lot of problems right now in the, with the 12 tribes. And, and a lot of it had to do with taxation. A lot of, a lot of it had to do with the harshness of the, of the labor and the building. And everybody's happy that we're a superpower, but we're tired. And they tell, Jer- they tell Rehoboam to lighten up. They agree with Jeroboam. You've got to lighten up on the people. Don't do what your father did. And it probably sounds pretty good at that point to Rehoboam, but then he does what I consider to be one of the, the, the most knuckle-headed things in, in the Bible. He goes to, to the young advisors, and they completely disagree with, 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 with the older advisors. They, they disagree with Jeroboam. You're not, you're not going to get lighter on the people. You're a new king. You've got to consolidate your power. you got to make a statement you got to tell these people who you are, and you got to show them that you mean business. They're in awe of Solomon to make sure that they respect you the way they respected his father. you got to make a statement. And so they said, be tougher. And for some reason, Rehoboam says, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's already hard on the people. I'm just going to make it harder. And so in verses 10 and 11, he says, this is my answer. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. I mean, he's talking about his dad. He's talking about his father. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about the king. And he says, My little finger has more force to it and more substance and more power than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it what? Heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, he's sort of been made king in Jerusalem. The, the country's not real cohesive right now because of taxation, compulsory labor, and all. And people have worn out. He knows, he's smart enough to know that he's got to go up into the middle of those ten tribes and say to them, hey, let's unite the kingdom and, uh, under my father and make sure that it's or un, un, that my father had united. Let's make sure that it stays united under me. And instead of endearing them to him, what does he do? He pushes them away. I'm going to make it tougher on you. My father whipped you with whips, scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. And at this meeting, everything breaks down. Any goodwill that had been there breaks down. There are these recalcitrant attitudes that set in. And in verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. When you say to your tents, what's that mean? We're leaving. Look after your own house, David. And the kingdom divides that was once flourishing under Saul and David and Solomon. And that prophecy of Ahijah out there on the road where he takes Jeroboam's shirt, his cloak or his garment and rips it into 12 and gives him 12 pieces and gives him back 10. That all comes true. Well, there are seeds of alienation that had been planted in those tribes. The prophecy had a lot of help through the years coming to fruition. You think, if these tribes had been so, so greatly united and they had been so so greatly brought together under one banner and one flag and under one king and under one God, why was it so easy for them to fall apart? Well, the prophecy had a lot of help through the years. There had been tensions between the tribes since the time of Joshua and Judges. You'll remember about all the times that the tribes seemed like, especially at the end of Joshua, it seemed like they were going to go to war against each other. And the same thing in Judges. The Ephraimites complained that they had not been called into the draft for Gideon's army in Judges chapter 8. And Gideon assuaged it a little bit. He saved it a little bit. But Ephraim is going to have a bit of a chip on its shoulder from here on out. And later on, during the time of Jephthah, Uh, Ephraim again criticizes Jephthah for neglecting Ephraim to to be called to battle and to share in the victory in Judges chapter 12. And so by the time you get to 1 Samuel, Saul's army is made up this way. The description of it, even though they're united, is made up this way. That there are 300,000 men of Israel and 30,000 of the men of Judah. There were already issues and fragmentation of of the tribes of Israel by the time that Saul is made king. And now this Rehoboam is acting foolishly, and he's, he's telling north Israel that his dad, Solomon, was a cupcake compared to what he is going to do to him. And just to make sure that they get the point, he appoints his fellow by the name of Adoram or Adoniram to deal with the compulsory labor and any of the insubordination that might follow from Israel. And guess what? uh, Adoniram is is stoned to death. They're not going to take it. And Rehoboam has a hot-footed back to Jerusalem. And one wonders if Rehoboam really realizes what he's gotten himself into and what is happening because he tries to raise an army of 180,000 men from Judah and Benjamin and he's going to go to war. And there is a, 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 a prophet, a fellow by the name of Shemaiah in 1 Kings chapter 12 that comes to the rescue and he talks Rehoboam out of going to war with his brothers in the north. But from this point on, the kingdom is effectively divided from about 931-930 B.C. to about 722-721 B.C. And when you look at South Judah, those two remaining tribes in the South, Benjamin and Judah, they're flanked on the west side by the, uh, the Dead Sea. They're flanked on the, on the east side, east side by, the, by the Dead Sea, on the west side by the Gaza Strip and the Philistines, and to the south by the Negev or the desert. Negev is, is just the word that means desert so when we say the Negev desert we're really saying desert desert the only access that they have is to the north and Jeroboam knows this and so what does he do the only way to the, to get to the north is 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 uh, is to go through the strong defenses that Jeroboam puts up and guess what Judah does Judah does the same thing and so the the borderline, that Mason-Dixon line between those ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south is just fortification after fortification, strong place after strong place in order to make more firm and cemented in, in the psyche of Israel at this time the division between those ten tribes that are going to be known as Ephraim or Israel and south Judah, which is actually going to be Judah and Benjamin. And when this happens... The seeds of destruction are being sown into those ten tribes. That Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in quotes. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, becomes the cliche for evil in the northern kingdom when it comes to the kings that follow him. They're all, the 18 successors uh, to Jeroboam are going to be referred to as the ones that followed in the steps of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, we don't know a lot about how the northern kingdom became organized and set up so quickly, uh, it's apparent that he set one up very, very fast. The scholars tend to think that he depended on what he had learned from his days with Solomon. Solomon was a great teacher, wise man, learned about organization, how to run a country, and he probably picked up some things while he was in Egypt with Pharaoh Shishak. And what is very apparent is that Jeroboam I, because there's going to be a Jeroboam second later on down the road during the time of Amos, is that he is an extremely effective strategic thinker. Now, he initially sets up the capital in Shechem, and then uh, he begins building in Penuel. And the connection to Jacob, I think, is really apparent. In Shechem, that's the place where Jacob settled. In Genesis chapter 32, Penuel is the place where Jacob wrestled with God. It's, It's on the east side of the Jordan River and north of the Jabbok River. The connection to Jacob would be made. And the connection to Jacob would help the people feel a little bit better, and those ten tribes feel a little bit better about the separation and about the division. And he knows that he also has to make a break with Jerusalem. That not only does he have to sort of re-identify himself or those ten tribes with Jacob and the patriarchs, but he also has to make a break with Jerusalem or those ten tribes might drift back to Solomon's temple. Now, you remember that that temple was absolutely gorgeous. And it was, it was tremendously beautiful. And it was a place that the people always longed to go to and to worship God and to be there with the priests and the Levites and the sacrifice and the worship. And Jeroboam knows that if he allows, if he allows the people to get, to get nostalgic for those days of worship, the great festivals that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy, that he's going to lose lose all political currency and influence in those north with those northern tribes as when they begin to get reacquainted with Solomon's temple. So Jeroboam sets up rival places of worship at Dan and Bethel. And that's in first Kings chapter twelve, beginning with about verse twenty six. And in order to make up for the loss of the religious symbols that were retained in Jerusalem, Jeroboam had two golden calves fashioned for the two sites of Dan and Bethel. Now, uh, probably about 1990, I think it was 1999 or maybe it was 2000, I had a chance to, uh, to visit Dan and to go to the place where they uncovered uh, the, the sacrificial site and, and where the, that, that gigantic altar was. And, you know, in most of the, the storybooks that I grew up with, you know, the altar is, you know, it looks like a credenza basically. Uh, the one that they have uncovered and, and have, re, you know, the dimensions of it that they have reconstructed with this aluminum skeleton frame is enormous. It looks like you know, you know, a small bedroom. It is so big. And you walk up to that thing and you go, my goodness, these, these sacrificial places were just enormous. But it, you're not long there before you, you begin to see there at Dan that there is a, a you know, kind of an open area and then there's some steps that go up. And at the top, that's where the golden calf was. This little golden calf. And again, you know, the storybook tells the golden calf is this huge thing. Normally, the golden calves were very, very small. And he has two golden calves fashioned for the two sites, One for Dan, one for Bethel. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar to anyone? You remember back in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4. He took what they handed him, Aaron, and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It does not sound like Israel is on the right track, does it? And the Bible says that Jeroboam built shrines on high places. This is the Asherah poles that that David read about out of 2 Kings chapter 17. He appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. Instituted festivals to sacrifice to the golden calves on the same day that Judah was making sacrifice at the temple. One of the great Old Testament scholars, uh, one of my favorites, uh, a guy by the name of Walter Kaiser writes this about this, this period in history. He says, The religious innovations introduced into the north by the new kings directly violated the Mosaic Covenant, providing at the very least an opportunity for syncretistic amalgamations with the fertility cult of Baal. What he's saying is, is that here's the opportunity to combine uh, Old, Testament, uh, Old Testament Judaism with all of the Canaanite religions around it and, and, and to make it a great, gigantic fertility cult of Baal. A potential that became a reality under Ahab and Jezebel. Indeed, the Canaanite gods of Baal and Hadad rode on the backs of bull calves. End of quote. In 1 Kings 13, an unnamed man of God from Judah arrived at Bethel. And he declares judgment on the worship center. And he predicted that there would be this prince of Judah, this young fellow by the name of Josiah uh, from the house of Judah, that would one day come into power and he would burn the bones of Jeroboam's false priest upon that altar. And Jeroboam does not like what he's hearing. He orders him to be arrested and he has his hand outstretched in order to say, that's the guy, arrest him. And what happens to his hand? It shrivels. And Jeroboam is a smart guy. And he quickly cancels the order and he begs the priest, this unnamed priest, to restore his hand, which he does. But Jeroboam does not repent. He does not repent. Which sets the course of apostasy for the ten northern tribes. And there are kings in north Israel for a little over 200 years. Jeroboam is the first and then Nadab his son. But Nadab is assassinated by Basha who went on to destroy the whole house of Jeroboam which was a prediction. And Basha rules uh, north Israel for 24 years but falls into the ways of Jeroboam. And the prediction of his demise by Jehu the son of Hanani comes true. And then you have Elah and Zimri. And then you have this king Omri that's that's famous for a lot of reasons. But in 1 Kings 16, he buys a piece of land from a fellow by the name of Shemer and builds his residence and calls it Samaria after Shemer. And it becomes, after a time, the new capital of north Israel until about 721 B.C. and the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians. And that's how Samaria becomes the, the capital of those ten tribes right there in the center. And then after Amri you have Ahab, who was uh, such a tremendous, unfaithful reprobate. You have Azahiah and Joram and Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II. Who is, by the time you get to Jeroboam II, Israel is going to be at zenith of its power after Solomon. They are ascending in power again. Uh, 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 Assyria is, is is sort of you know, you know kind of wavering a little bit. Babylon is is not that strong at all. And Jeroboam is 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 the second is going to make Israel rich, and they're going to be a superpower when it comes to military. We'll talk about that when we get to Amos, though. And then after that, you have Zechariah and Shalom and Menahem and Pekahiah and Pekah. And then finally, as you remember from 2 Kings chapter 17, Hosea is the last king of Israel before the Assyrians come and destroy everything. And God will send the prophets. There's going to be Hosea and there's going to be Amos and there are going to be others that are going to go up into the north. And, And they're going to say... To, to, to the kings of North Israel and to the people and to the priests and to the leaders. You need to repent. Amos is famous for the, the Ko Amar Adonai Hebrew phrase, Thus saith the Lord. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Amos. But God sends these prophets and, and he, he, he gives the prophets not only the words, but the ways to say it in such a way that it becomes attractive or it becomes a, a, a way of grabbing Israel's attention in order to bring repentance, but it's to no avail. And finally, the Assyrians come. And the capital of Samaria, which Isaiah says is a very, very beautiful capital. The capital of Samaria is destroyed and those Assyrians take those ten tribes into exile never to be heard from again. And the only ones that are left in the land are, are just really just kind of a, a remnant... What the Assyrians considered to be you know, the leftovers of humanity after they have taken everything off into, into captivity. And these that are left in the land are reeling emotionally and financially and physically and spiritually. And one of the practices of the Assyrians was to leave an occupational force in all of these places, these cities and these nations that they had conquered and conquered with such brutality that the people were going to be so afraid of ever rising up again and and bringing the Assyrians back that they could leave an occupational force made up of foreigners. And to survive, many of these that were left from those ten tribes married into the occupational force that was left by the Assyrians. And by doing this, they were considered to be compromisers of faith. Breakers of, of covenant violators of the law of Moses. And they would not be accepted by the Jews. They were seen as a people who had compromised. Which was an easy assertion when you think about the history of North Israel. It was really easy to see. well, think about their history for the 200 years of those kings that they had, or a little over 200 years of those kings, and the way that they led Israel down you know, this, 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 this apostasy path. It's easy to see how compromise is just a part of their nature. And later in history, when Nehemiah, after Jerusalem falls, which we'll talk about in the future as kind of the second part of the exile, uh, later in history, when Nehemiah brings the Jews back from Babylonian captivity, he runs into resistance from the wealthy men of Samaria as he tries to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There is no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. There is no love lost. and and In fact, the the rabbis began to, to talk a lot and it's recorded in Talmud of how you're supposed to you know, to interact with the Samaritans if you're a Jew and and where you can travel through their lands. No love laws between Jews and Samaritans. And then one day, a Jewish son of a carpenter sits down at a place in Samaria called Sychar where the well of Jacob was located. And a Samaritan woman comes in the middle of the day to draw water, which is an indication of perhaps the reputation that she had. It was not that great. She's not coming in the morning, cool of the morning, the cool of the evening to draw water. She's ostracized. She is a, a pariah. She is persona non grata in, in that village. And she comes in the middle of the day to draw water. And this Jewish son of a carpenter asks her for a drink of water. And she's shocked. Because, as John tells us, you know, she says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And in this parenthetical statement, for Jews do not associate with whom, church? Samaritans. And this leads to a conversation about life and about things in general. And it culminates with this. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, there's the residual division there even to the time of Jesus. We Samaritans say it's over here, which was a reference to Mount Gerizim. You Jews say that it's in Jerusalem there on Mount Zion. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit. And His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Jesus is the one who will reunite these people. Jew and Samaritan in the true kingdom of God. And He will be the ultimate King to bring them out of exile and into the kingdom of His Father. No wonder this woman was changed. You know, to, to, to have lived in the shadow of that hatred, to, to, to live not only with being ostracized and, 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 and separated from our own village people, but, but we Samaritans and you Jews in this mountain and in Jerusalem. And what do you say? The Messiah will explain everything to us. And for this one, this, this Jewish son of a carpenter by the name of Jesus, you say, I who am speaking to you am He. She is so overcome that she leaves that water bucket right there beside the well. The symbol of her own problem, her own disease, her own fallenness, her own wrecked life, her own brokenness, her own fragmentation, her own exile. Not only from her people, but from God. She goes running back into the town of Sychar and says, I have met a man, I think he's the Messiah, he's told me everything about him. And they all turn around and they go out to Jesus, and what happens? Many of the Samaritans believe. I think one of the most tremendous things about the kingdom of God, when, when you when you really think about it, is, is how all our sin, when you think about the nature of sin, all our sin is nothing but just a, a pushback and a rejection of 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 things around us. Uh, From the simplest relationships, when when people sin against each other, they don't want to go and hug each other. They don't want to embrace each other. They don't run toward each other. They run away from each other. In marriages, it's the same thing. In families, it's the same thing where there is sin that is rampant. Husbands and wives flee from each other and children flee from parents and parents from children and in the workplace and in the neighborhoods and all around us, because of sin, there is strife and separation and exile and people moving into loneliness where there should be community all of these things happen because of sin. And yet, when the true King comes with His Gospel, He just completely reverses everything. And the Psalms, uh, primarily the Psalms of Ascent, which were, were sung by people that were going back to Jerusalem after the captivities, after, af- after Babylonian captivity, and after living in a far land, they, they were singing these Psalms uh, there in the the 120s, they're they're singing these psalms as they are traveling back to Jerusalem and thinking about how great it is to be reunited and how great it is to be in fellowship and how great it is to be a part of a family and how great it is to know that God is our help and it's not the help that is in those high places or those places where we lift up our eyes and we see those shrines it is in it is in God Himself and as the people would sing those songs. And as they were traveling back to Jerusalem, their unity and their community and their fellowship would just get great. And then Acts 2 rolls around. And the church has begun. And not long after that, they're going into Judea and they're going into Samaria. Samaria. And, and, and people are hearing the Gospel and being brought into the body of Christ. And then not long after that, they're going as far away as Antioch. And then in chapter 13, they're going into the entire world and meeting every ethnic group, every socioeconomic status known to the, the, the ancient world. And they're all coming together to be one in Christ. A story of Israel and the story of, of South Judah is a story of exile, is a story of division, is a story of sin. But the story of the Messiah, the ultimate King, is 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 the story of bringing about a kingdom that brings the exiles in and brings them into the presence of the King once again. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight, uh, pray with you, counsel with you, study with you, whatever it might be, we want you to come down to the front and talk to our shepherds as we stand and praise God together. Is it for me, dear Savior, thy glory and thy rest, for me so weak and sinful?